0: Welcome to this podcast titled Alert Fatigue and Failure to Escalate Care, where we are drawing on the content from the September 2022 print edition of the Clinical Communicate. I'm Associate Professor Nicola Cunningham, the Editor-in-Chief of this series. In this podcast episode, we look at two cases that highlight the concepts of alert fatigue and failure to escalate care. These are two critical concepts in healthcare that represent a key area of preventable patient harm. Using technology or predetermined trigger points to improve systems for patient safety, such as electronic medication alerts and early warning systems, are only as good as the systems and environments that allow for those alerts and warnings to be acted upon. Message sent does not always equal message received. In this podcast, we look at why. Our case summary authors explore the factors that contribute to alert fatigue and failure to escalate care, and our expert in this podcast, Dr. David Bramley, identifies the fundamental limitations that are common to both, and what is really needed in smart systems designs to mitigate risk and promote critical thinking to improve patient safety. Let's now listen to Luke Ward narrate the editorial
1: contents of this podcast include an editorial case number one an alarming error case number two deteriorating or not and expert commentary perspectives on risk mitigation and alert fatigue editorial from associate professor nicola cunningham welcome to the third edition of the clinical communique for 2022 Our readers will recall that our previous edition, The Clinical Communiqué, June 2022, was our milestone 20-year edition, and we were honoured to mark the occasion with a collection of compelling and insightful commentaries from leaders in the patient safety movement over the past two decades. It was a substantial edition, our biggest undertaking to date, with an enormous amount of content to digest. Our experts offered their lessons learned and sagacious guidance for a better future crafted from a wealth of knowledge, experience, and determination in their hard-fought efforts to improve the quality and safety of patient care. I strongly recommend that you revisit the edition as you will discover more gems each time you come back to it. Use the commentaries as a platform for ideas that you want to test or introduce in your own workplaces. Discuss the ideas with your peers, in your tea breaks, handovers, journal clubs, teaching sessions and at grand rounds. Momentum is the key to achieving change and collective efforts to drive action is what will bring about system changes in healthcare. In this edition, we return to our familiar format of presenting coroner's case summaries with an expert commentary that explores some of the themes identified in the cases. We highlight two cases, both involving post-operative patients, where electronic alerts were overridden and criteria for escalation were met, but not actioned. These cases introduce the concept of alarm or alert fatigue, terms used interchangeably, and failure to escalate care and failure to rescue. This publication has regularly focused upon learning from recurring errors, things that keep happening but shouldn't. Whether it's alarm fatigue from multiple alerts that cause annoyance and fade into seeming inconsequence before being deleted from the desktop of consciousness, or a failure to escalate care due to a confusion between not changing and stable, the commonality is a lack of focused attention. For an individual, this can be exacerbated by fatigue or the automatic processing type of thinking that occurs when performing routine tasks. For a team, the relative strength of an alert signal can be muffled by barriers to communication, a perceived lack of safety in speaking up, and a tendency towards belief similarity with the person immediately occupying the highest point of the hierarchy. How can we develop our teams to share the burden of risk management responsibilities at every level and make safety behaviours the new model of success? We do this by using technology in a smart way to support our decisions and creating environments where our teams understand risk and are not just empowered, but directed to refocus our attention when needed. Our expert commentary, which includes a sophisticated and holistic approach to risk management interventions, is by Dr. David Bramley, a senior anaesthetist with extensive experience in designing safer systems in healthcare. He has worked on ANZCA's professional guideline for the safe management and use of medications in anaesthesia, was a chair of Western Health Medication Safety Committee during electronic medical record implementation, and is consultant to the Victorian Therapeutic Advisory Group on a number of hospital safety issues. He is currently employing his clinical risk expertise in the most practical way possible as a medical lead contributing to the design of a new-build hospital.
0: Let's now listen to the case from New South Wales.
1: Case number one, an alarming error from Case Precy author Dr Susan Doherty, emergency medicine physician. Clinical summary. Mr P. L. was a 54-year-old man who was admitted to a private hospital for an elective anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction to his knee. He had a history of hypertension and hyperlipidemia and his only medication was an antihypertensive tablet. Mr. PL was originally listed as the fifth and final patient on the operating list, but on the day the surgeon requested that the fourth patient, Miss GS, be moved to the end of the list, so Mr. PL became the fourth patient during Mr. PL's operation. The anesthetist charted his post-operative medications, including antiemetics, paracetamol oxycodone and salicoxib. These were charted on the electronic medical record system, TrackCare. At the completion of the operation, the anaesthetist transferred Mr. P. L. to the recovery ward and gave a verbal handover to the recovery nurse. The anaesthetist returned to the operating room and surgery for the next patient, Ms. G. S., commenced. During this operation, the anaesthetist remembered that he had not charted IV fluids for Mr. P. L., He opened Mr. PL's chart on his computer to do so, and then his attention was drawn back to the clinical needs of Ms. GS. Three minutes later, he began prescribing medications for Ms. GS, a fentanyl patient-controlled analgesia and high-dose fentanyl patch were charted along with routine post-operative medications. While prescribing these medications, a series of alerts, 22 in total, were triggered on the track care system, These occurred in three separate batches, 11 alerts in the first, six in the second, and five in the third. When they appeared on the screen, the alerts were defaulted to a tick for override option. Each batch was manually overridden by the anaesthetist, who selected consultant's decision from a drop-down menu of reasons. The anaesthetist left the hospital after the surgical list finished. He subsequently had two phone calls from separate nursing staff. One stated there were no medication orders in Ms GS's chart, and later, another stated there were duplicate orders for Cervazolin and Paracetamol on Mr PL's chart. The anaesthetist, believing that he must have closed Ms GS's electronic file prior to saving the medication orders, arranged for the medications to be charted. In the second call, he advised the nursing staff to discontinue the duplicate orders for Cervazolin and Paracetamol in Mr PL's chart. Meanwhile, a dispensing pharmacist received the medication orders from Mr PL and noted that the strongest fentanyl patch had been charted but understood that the order would be reviewed by another pharmacist and the ward team prior to being dispensed. Although it was normal practice for the pharmacist to discuss any medication issues with the prescriber, she thought that the anaesthetist was in theatre so did not contact him and proceeded to finalise the medication for delivery to the ward. At 7.30pm, the anaesthetist returned to the hospital, primarily to ensure that the missing medications for Miss GS had been correctly charted. Whilst at the hospital, he visited a number of his post-operative patients, including Mr PL. At this time, the anaesthetist noticed both the fentanyl PCA and fentanyl patch on Mr PL and asked him why he was using the patch. Mr PL explained it was for his knee pain, The anaesthetist assumed that Mr PL used patches pre-operatively for chronic pain, therefore warranting its use post-operatively and must have, together with the PCA, been commenced by another clinician. At approximately 10pm after receiving handover, the night nursing ward staff reviewed Mr PL. He was alert and orientated, and his partner was visiting. They checked his knee and PCA log and explained they would return to review him every two hours. At 12:20 a.m., approximately 1 hour after Mr. PL's partner left the hospital, a junior member of the nursing team performed a set of observations on Mr. PL which were unremarkable, however, he was drowsy. As she was about to leave the room, the AIN had a gut feeling something was wrong, so she listened to Mr. PL's breath for several minutes. There were periods of shallow breathing followed by sounds of gasping and snoring. At approximately 12:30 a.m., the AIN asked the clinical nurse specialist if Mr. P.L. had a history of obstructive sleep apnea, as his breathing pattern seemed odd. The CNS advised the AIN to increase the flow of supplemental oxygen. The AIN then asked the CNS to review Mr. P.L. as she was worried that something was wrong. The CNS agreed to look at him after she finished administering Schedule Eight medications. When the AIN returned to Mr. P.L.'s room, he was unresponsive and pulseless. A code blue was called at 12.38am. During resuscitation efforts, intubation attempts were abandoned due to large amounts of vomitus in the airway. Death was confirmed at 12.56am. Pathology At autopsy, the cause of death was found to be aspiration pneumonia, resulting from mixed drug toxicity, with fentanyl being the most likely causal agent. Investigation After Mr. PL's death, a prescription error was discovered, whereby the fentanyl PCA and patch intended for Ms. GS had been prescribed for Mr. PL. It transpired that when the anaesthetist had proceeded to chart medications for Ms. GS during her operation, he was mistakenly still in Mr. PL's chart, which he had not closed after charting intravenous fluids for him. The main issues that were addressed by the coroner at inquest included how the prescription error occurred, the role of the electronic medical record and prescribing platform, why the prescription error was not detected during the subsequent period of care, whether there were systemic issues causing deficiency in nursing care and what changes were made at the hospital to reduce future risk. The coroner heard that track care was an end-to-end system used to prescribe all medications, patient-controlled analgesia and intravenous fluids. It contained the complete medical records for each patient, including the medication charts, laboratory results and inpatient forms. It had been implemented at the hospital one month prior to Mr P.L.'s admission. Expert written and verbal evidence were provided by a senior nurse with perioperative experience and a senior staff specialist in anaesthesia. Both agreed that better medical and nursing handovers with clarification and review of the medication orders on track care and closer monitoring for patients on sedative medications should have taken place. The nurse expert stated that the nursing staff should have confirmed the fentanyl PCA order with the anaesthetist as it had not been monitored in his verbal handover and such a regimen was unusual in Mr. PL's circumstances given the minimally invasive procedure. Further clarification should have also been sought by the nursing staff in their shift handovers and of their checking processes prior to initiating the fentanyl medications. The CNS should have recognized the signs of clinical deterioration and reviewed Mr. PL without delay. The medical expert stated that the two phone calls should have alerted the anesthetist to the possibility that medication had been incorrectly charted for the wrong patient under his care. The medical expert believed that the anesthetist should not have made the assumptions he made, and there were several points in time where the error should have been detected. When the anesthetist saw Mr. PL that evening, he did not check the dose on the fentanyl patch, nor did he recall from the pre anesthetic medical history that Mr. PL was opioid naive. He did not review the track care record to confirm who had charted the patch and PCA. The medical expert acknowledged that while there are benefits to an electronic medical record system, errors are easier to make due to the ability to open different patient charts at the same computer terminal. Both experts noted that separate to the issue of verifying the appropriateness of the medications prescribed for Mr. P.L., the use of two modes of fentanyl delivery should have alerted staff to the greater risk of oversedation and the need for more frequent clinical observations. At the time of inquest, the hospital had taken a number of steps to prevent future prescribing errors. These included functionality improvements to their electronic medical record system, for example, colour banners to show whether the patient on the screen is connected to a continuous monitoring device in the operating theatre, amendments to their PCA policy that require the prescriber to record whether additional analgesia can be given with the PCA, and increased training for nurses on handover practices and opioid awareness. Coroner's Findings the coroner found that Mr. PL's death was caused by a prescribing error that was not detected prior to his death. The anaesthetist failed to exercise proper care, diligence, and caution, and overrode 22 alerts in three batches whilst prescribing. The coroner stated that the main reason the prescribing error was not detected was a persistent failure of critical thinking by those involved in the care of Mr. PL compounded by the systemic deficiencies in nursing care. This started with the overriding of the medication alerts and continued when a series of untenable assumptions were made by the anaesthetist. This failure in critical thinking continued with the dispensing pharmacist not fully assessing the appropriateness of medication and the nursing staff not questioning the unusual medication orders The coroner recommended that a working party be established to consider the lessons learned and the case should be presented in a seminar to the multidisciplinary teams involved. At a minimum, the seminar should address communication, handover, opioid policy, observation of patients on high-risk medication, Schedule 8 checks and responding to patient deterioration. A number of recommendations were also made regarding track care including adding specific boxes for current medications and post-operative pain plan. The coroner advised that the electronic system should be modified to ensure alerts enhance patient safety without unduly distracting or diverting anaesthetists, such as removal of the default batch override system, reviewing how to safely reduce the number of alerts, creating a hierarchy of alerts and creating an alert for duplicate orders." There were further recommendations regarding assessing track care proficiency in staff, handover training and audits, and mechanisms to provide safe perioperative management. Author's comments. This case is a stark and sobering reminder of how individual error can unmask latent system errors with devastating consequences for the patient. A previously well man who underwent an uncomplicated elective procedure died within 12 hours of his operation. As a medical practitioner, it is not difficult to envisage how the initial prescribing error could occur. It is somewhat confronting, though, to observe how it is possible for a health system to fail to safety net this error across numerous domains, including computer-based alerts, clinical handovers, and multiple patient-staff interactions. Amongst the many recommendations made by the coroner to address computer-based risk in prescribing... Those centred around minimising alarm fatigue will be reassuring to clinicians, many of whom work in time-pressured and clinically demanding environments. It is unlikely, however, that optimising such infrastructure without addressing the innate conditions that predispose to individual error will wholly remove risk to patients. In considering this, The coroner referred to the common thread of deficits in critical thinking, which can be described as the ability to analyse evidence or information in a logical or unbiased manner. If such learned skills were applied diffusely across a health system, individuals might be empowered to detect and act on errors as described in this tragic case and tighten the safety net that our patients expect and rely upon.
0: Let's now listen to the case from the ACT.
1: Case number two, deteriorating or not, from Case Pricey author Ms Libby Newman, clinical nurse specialist, forensic pathology. Clinical Summary Mrs. Z was a 75-year-old woman when she was admitted to a private hospital in a metropolitan city for debridement surgery and the application of a vacuum dressing to an ulcerated area on her lower leg. Mrs. Z had a medical history that included ovarian cancer, deep vein thrombosis, hypertension and cardiac issues. An electrocardiogram performed the day before admission indicated left ventricular hypertrophy with strain and or ischemia. Dr. F was Mrs. Z's anaesthetist and reviewed her on the day of admission. Physical assessment revealed a systolic ejection murmur. Mrs. Z denied any valvular disease and had seen a cardiologist four years earlier who had advised no follow-up was required. Dr F considered the need for a transthoracic echocardiogram pre-surgery and discussed this with a cardiac anaesthetist colleague. However, they decided it was not needed at the time, as Mrs Z had reasonable exercise tolerance and no chest pain. In addition, it was considered that even if severe aortic stenosis was found, Mrs Z would need the debridement surgery before valve replacement. Mrs Z's operation was in the late morning, Dr F noted poor peripheral perfusion and an ear probe was required for oxygen saturation monitoring. Initial hypertension was treated with metaraminol, and other than this, the surgery was unremarkable. Mrs Z's procedure was completed at 12.32pm when she was transferred to recovery and then extubated. Mrs Z's clinical observations were stable, but Dr F noted she continued to have poor peripheral perfusion. Dr F discussed Mrs Z's condition with her surgeon and it was decided there was no specific concerns. As an added precaution, the surgeon arranged for Mrs Z to be admitted to the hospital's specialist geriatric ward directly adjacent to their intensive care unit. At 2pm, Mrs Z was transferred to the ward clinical observations were taken shortly after which demonstrated hypertension low enough to warrant a medical emergency team or met call as per the modified early warning score or muse chart a met call was not made by the nursing staff however a review by the resident medical officer dr p was requested dr p was the sole doctor in the hospital available to see ward patients he arrived at 2:30 p.m. and assessed Mrs. Z as being hypovolemic and ordered additional intravenous fluids. Dr. P returned to review Mrs. Z at 3:10 p.m. Her blood pressure continued to be low enough to warrant a met call. In addition, the vacuum drain on Mrs. Z's leg was noted to be very full. The nursing staff asked Dr. P to alter the met call criteria and parameters. However, Dr. P declined and stated a met call should be made. Dr. P was then advised by the nursing staff that he was the primary responder to calls, so he called Mrs. Z's surgeon, who suggested pausing the vacuum drain and arranging an ICU review. Dr. P went to the ICU and spoke with a consultant, Dr. K, who suggested taking bloods and obtaining an ECG. These actions were commenced, but around 5pm, Dr. P was called away to assist an urgent cesarean section. Mrs. Z was not distressed and although her blood pressure was still low, it did not fall further. Both Dr. K and Dr. P reviewed Mrs. Z at 5.45pm and it was decided to admit her to ICU overnight for monitoring of her hypotension. Clinical observations taken on the ward at 6.15pm and again at 6.30pm showed Mrs. Z's blood pressure was low enough to warrant a met call. However, as she was being transferred to the ICU, a met call was not made. Clinical observations of Mrs. Z on arrival to the ICU were of an alert, responsive, pain-free woman who was breathing normally, with hypotension and a sinus tachycardia. At approximately 7.15pm, a transthoracic echocardiogram was performed, which showed moderate concentric left ventricular hypertrophy with suspected lateral wall mild hypokinesia. Some increase in Mrs. Z's blood pressure was noted at this time. At approximately 7.30pm, Mrs. Z was reviewed by Dr. P and Dr. F. It was Dr. F's first review of Mrs. Z since she had come out of the operating theatre. Mrs. Z was reportedly comfortable and alert. At 7.47pm, Mrs. Z collapsed. Nursing staff made a med call and Dr. F, Dr. K and Dr. P all attended immediately to find Mrs. Z in cardiac arrest. Resuscitation efforts continued until about 8.20pm when Mrs. Z was declared deceased. Pathology A post-mortem examination was conducted after which the forensic pathologist recommended an expert review of Mrs. Z's post-operative management. The coroner found that Mrs. Z's cause of death was cardiac arrest in the context of aortic stenosis of moderate to severe severity, coronary artery disease and left ventricular hypertrophy. Investigation Mrs Z's death was reported under the ACT Coroners Act of 1997 that stipulated all patients dying within 24 hours of having undergone surgery were reportable to the coroner. This criterion has now changed from being time-based to causation-based. A coronial investigation was conducted, which included seeking an expert opinion from an anaesthetist intensivist, Dr S, and a response from the hospital to the issue raised by the expert. The coroner noted the following areas of concern based on the brief of evidence and the expert's report. Failure to follow hospital policy in relation to met calls and delay to first defibrillation and that the further shockable rhythms were not shocked. The coroner noted that when Mrs Z arrived on the ward, her blood pressure was at a level warranting a met call. However, nursing staff did not call one. The hospital's response to this was that it was sensible as Dr P was able to attend promptly and that the staff must exercise discretion when making met calls. Likewise, the low blood pressure readings after 6pm were during a period of transfer to the ICU. Therefore, the hospital stated it was appropriate that a met call was not made." The hospital submitted that had a Met call been made at 3.10pm, an appropriate number of staff would have been available to respond. Coroner's findings. The coroner was unable to find that the failure to make the Met calls contributed to Mrs Z's death, however noted that a system designed to highlight early warning signs in patients was overridden without good evidence of the reasons why. The coroner accepted the hospital's submission, that discretion is important, but found that the nursing documentation did not adequately elaborate as to the decision-making processes at the time. The coroner also expressed concern that when Dr P suggested making a met call in the mid-afternoon, the nursing staff advised there would be little use as he was the first responder. This was inappropriate and potentially misleading given the hospital's subsequent assertion that had later indicated that more staff would have responded. The coroner made four recommendations, including that the hospital implement training and changes to procedures such that where a discretion is exercised to not make a met call that is otherwise warranted, the exercise of that discretion and the reasons behind it should be formally recorded in the patient progress notes to put beyond doubt that patient warning signs have not been overlooked or disregarded accordingly. The coroner did not hold an inquest into the death of Mrs Z, as, in their view, her manner and cause of death were sufficiently disclosed through the course of the coronial investigation. Author's comments. Early warning systems are designed to assist clinicians to detect deterioration in their patients to avoid further deterioration or other unforeseen complications, such as cardiopulmonary arrest or unplanned admission to the ICU. In Mrs Z's case, it appears the early warning system was noted on multiple occasions, but the reasons not to act were not stated. The coroner recommended that the decision making in this regard should have been documented and would then have offered the rationale used by both nursing and medical staff in not escalating the care for Mrs Z when the Muse criteria recommended further action. The failure to escalate care, also known as failure to rescue, as per early warning system protocols, has been the focus of research over recent years. Multiple factors have been found to impact the failure to rescue, including staffing levels, lack of standardisation, lack of accountability, under or overconfidence of clinicians, hierarchical workplace culture, fear and communication barriers. It was possibly a combination of these factors that influenced the failure to rescue Mrs Z. The National Institute for Health and Care Excellence in the United Kingdom states clinicians should be supported to be competent in monitoring, measuring and interpreting results, including being able to promptly respond to an acutely unwell patient. Education and training should be provided to ensure staff understand and correctly interpret the clinical observations they are taking and that they feel supported and confident to follow protocols of care as recommended by their hospital's chosen early warning system. Early warning systems are designed to help clinicians identify patients who may be deteriorating. The workplace environment and overall culture should ideally be supportive of clinicians being vigilant and using the tools provided to them to advocate for the safety of their patients fostering a workplace environment where it is better to make a met call than not, as per the early warning system guidance, should be supported by all clinicians. This should sit alongside a clinician's discretion for alternative and importantly rationalisable judgment calls in relation to a deteriorating patient, which can also be endorsed by the organisation.
0: Let's now listen to the expert commentary by Dr David Bramley.
1: Expert Commentary Perspectives on Risk Mitigation and Alert Fatigue from Dr. David Bramley, Deputy Director of the Department of Anesthesia, Pain and Perioperative Medicine and Medical Lead at the New Footscray Hospital Project, Western Health. All healthcare settings, from hospitals to primary practice, have experienced the impacts of digital transformation over the last few decades. The chief characteristic of this change has been the exponential increase in the volume of data and the subsequent development of electronic and other systems to collect, organize, and present it to a broad audience of clinicians, administrators, and consumers. In this context, the modern electronic health record (EHR) is often heralded as an enabler of improvement in the safety, quality, and efficiency of healthcare. The promise of an EHR extends beyond its ability to store information to its potential to intelligently guide healthcare providers making critical decisions in complex environments. Clinical systems to activate hospital medical emergency team responses use analogous data synthesis tools and frameworks to provide clinical decision support for staff. Despite undeniable advantages, the temptation to accept such systems as being self-evidently a good thing must be subjected to critical appraisal that acknowledges their limitations and seeks to understand the impact they have on the people who interact with them. Readers, listeners and contributors to the clinical communiqué will likely have a keen interest in patient safety, an awareness of human factor science and an understanding of the contribution good systems design may have on risk mitigation in healthcare. Beyond professional obligations to reflect on our own practice, many will also have assisted with adverse event reviews or participated in working groups or committees charged with improving the quality and safety of clinical care. Often, these efforts will have been directed to addressing specific challenges or in response to a tragic outcome that drives us to closely examine a small part of a complex system in detail and frequently demands that something must be done." The public language associated with adverse event management in healthcare using descriptors such as never events and targeting zero reinforces this urgency to act. As with previous contributors, I support calls to adopt a more holistic view of risk, as reported by Mr. Martin Fletcher and Mr. Paul Schinkfield in the Clinical Communiqué June 2022 edition, and encourage the following thought experiment as an exercise to develop this elevated thinking. With apologies to Albert Einstein, if we reframe the first law of thermodynamics and replace the energy with risk, we arrive at Risk cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be changed from one form to another. This reframing of the law of conservation of energy provides a provocative analogy to prompt a more comprehensive assessment of the likely impact of risk mitigation strategies. In its original form, the law states that the energy within a closed system must remain constant. An observer that perceives a reduction in energy has rather unknowingly witnessed its transfer to another place or transformation to an alternative form. Most commonly, this occurs because the observer's view is limited by design or imagination, with the narrowed perspective resulting in a misinterpretation of the true impact of the change. It follows that a system designer building an alert in an EHR or clinician constructing a recommendation from an adverse event analysis must consider the wider impact of any strategies proposed. A more familiar expression of this idea is the law of unintended consequences, although this suggests a random or unpredictable effect rather than a considered accounting for how risks may be transformed. Although not scientific, a broad view can be cultured and will reveal that these risks have temporal qualities or delayed consequences and transform in familiar financial and time costs and unexpected physician burnout ways. It also becomes apparent that risk encroaches on other domains and must be balanced between individuals and populations. The automatic or protocolized use of alerts and warnings provides an illustrative example of these complex interplays. Alert fatigue is a term that healthcare providers acknowledge, often with a resigned nod of the head, as a familiar feature of clinical practice in the digital age. A body of literature describes what we recognise as a substantial burden of combined auditory, visual, and other electronic messages and warnings generated by physiologic monitoring systems, infusion devices, and computerised provider order entry systems. Viewed in isolation, Alerts may have face validity when designed to prompt or prevent a consequential action, but the value is lost when the sheer volume of these messages lead to clinicians' desensitisation. The problem is further compounded by high proportions of artefactual or low-consequence alerts where risk-averse manufacturers or guideline authors favour high sensitivity, we must advise everything, over specificity for observations that matter." The rationale for this conservative approach is that responsibility for determining the significance of an alert must rest with the clinician. There is truth in this sentiment, but it is analogous to asking the villagers to climb the hillside many times a day in preference to improving the lupine detection skills of the boy who cried wolf. Solutions to this modern epidemic require more than the adjustment of alert sensitivity and must involve collaborative efforts between manufacturers of devices and EHRs, patient safety organisations, leaders and clinicians. Fostering a culture of safety starts with acknowledging this shared responsibility. Good data about alert activations and triggered responses, whether for electronic medication management or the activation of medical emergency teams, informs intelligent analysis that can support the development of tailored, meaningful thresholds. Proactive adjustment and implementation are superior to reactive designs that enable bulk override of low-value alerts. Instead, reduce alerts presented within optimal user interfaces Promote situational awareness and critical thinking when it matters most. System designs that preclude certain error types are also recognised as highly effective in intervention hierarchies, but should always prompt active consideration of risk transformation. If this holistic view of risk management requires strong teams and brave actions, we must ask what this means within a safety culture. The concept of psychological safety is described by organisational researcher Amy Edmondson as a shared belief held by team members of a team that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. Workers in high-reliability industries such as healthcare and aviation will recognise the core components of accepting human fallibility and encouraging curiosity as being essential to building a safety culture. Crucially, it applies not only to the proactive collaborations required to design effective systems and governance frameworks, but to the individuals working within these organisations engaged in complex activities such as medication management and critical patient care. Understanding that these processes require the collective skills and inputs of many staff, it is apparent that we cannot afford to accept workplace silence when voice is necessary. In essence, these are calls to encourage a change in perspective, a more holistic view of risk management interventions that questions the potential impacts across a broad range of domains, and a view that shifts our focus from the isolated responsibilities of individuals to the behaviours required of the whole team. Building the skills, imagination and cultures that support this should be core business for us all.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this podcast episode. Remember the online print versions are available at our website at www.thecommunicase.com, which also include hyperlinks and a list of resources and any references that our case summary authors and our experts have recommended. I'm Nicola Cunningham. Thanks for listening.